Soft Engineering Radio, episode 132, Top 10 Architecture Mistakes with Owen Woods. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Please visit audiblepodcast.com slash SER for your free audiobook download. This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio brings you relevant and detailed discussions and interviews on software engineering topics every 10 days. Thanks to our audience and the partners listed on our website for support. Welcome everybody to Software Engineering Radio. This episode is a discussion with Owen Woods. Yes, that's how you pronounce the name <laughs> about software architecture mistakes and what you can learn from them. But before we get to the actual content, let me briefly introduce our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Audible.com. It's the internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment. They have over 51,000 titles you can download and listen to on all your devices, like your iPod, whatever. Uh, among them, a lot of science and technology stuff. They have novels. They also have a specifically interesting science fiction section. So, and as a podcast listener, I guess there's a chance that you like to consume information via listening. So I guess Audible is, is a good match for, for you guys, for you listeners. As an SE Radio listener, you can get one book for free if you uh, subscribe. It's at www.audiblepodcast.com slash SER. And uh, if you subscribe there, you can cancel at any time. I know that because I actually did that two years ago. I you know, I subscribed to get the free book and then and then cancelled. But <laughs> a while later, I came back and now I am uh, actually a subscriber. One of the books I, I listened to recently is a Rendezvous with Rama by Arthur C. Clarke. It's a very nice uh, science fiction novel where some scientists discover that something, some kind of asteroid is, you know, approaching the Earth and they're already getting into position to defend the Earth and then they notice it's some kind of spaceship and then they explore it. So it's a very nice Arthur C. Clarke novel. It's uh, read, I don't know by whom it's read, but it's important that you check who reads stuff because a good reader can make a big difference. And it was a good reader, just don't know the name. So if you want to try it out, go to audiblepodcast.com slash SER and give it a try. Thanks to Audible for supporting this podcast. Okay, and uh, now let's get on with the actual content, the discussion with Owen Woods about software architecture mistakes. Um, once again, this is an episode we recalled at the Jau conference in Aarhus, Denmark in, uh, what is it, September, October 2008. And today we're uh, talking about top 10 software architecture and architect mistakes. Our guest today is Owen Woods. Hello. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. Absolutely. Thanks for being on the show. Um, so before we start, obviously, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Uh, my name is Owen Woods. Uh, I'm a working software architect. I'm not a researcher or someone who kind of writes books or is training for a living. Uh, been a doing software architecture since the late 1990s, I'd guess. Uh, started my career with Bull working on uh, their version of a product called Tuxedo, which some of you may know. Mm -hmm. Spent some time with Sybase, working on database systems, system management, also working as a consultant. Um, I've worked for a startup, Intertrust Technologies, uh, in California. Um, and most recently, I've worked for UBS Investment Bank for nearly three years. And most recently, I now work for Barclays Global Investors in London right. as a software architect, specifically on one major program, Apex, which is our new portfolio management system. 
And of course, although you say you, uh, you are a working software architect, you don't just write books, you did also write a book. I did, in fact, co-author a book with my colleague Nick Rosensky, who uh, has also, in fact, just joined Barclays Global Investors. <laughs> so you never know. Maybe there's another one lurking out there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll put the book URL into the show notes, of course. And there's, there's good f free stuff on the site to download. So thanks. Cool. Yep. So um, before we actually look at those top 10 things, um, obviously, you, you, you call yourself an architect. Um, so you probably, well, you must have some understanding what it means to be an architect. So why don't you briefly uh, express or explain the actual work you do? Because this is always an interesting question. I mean, what do architects do? Indeed. Uh, it's, it's a very good question. And uh, I separate architects into three buckets, actually. There are people who do enterprise architecture, and I definitely don't do that. Mm -hmm. And they, I'd summarize them, they're the people who work out what systems need to be built and how they should be linked together. Mm. There's the infrastructure architects, and I definitely don't do that either. Uh, those are the people who are experts in how the company should use a particular technology stack or kind of technology. Mm -hmm. So you might have you know, data architects who, who uh, decide how, how your databases should be used and so on, middleware architects, mm -hmm. worry about messaging and, uh, and app servers. And then this is the sort of architect I am, which, uh, and we're the people who build systems, or rather we lead teams to build right. systems. Yeah. Uh, we're a bit like team leaders, except that we don't tend to have people reporting to us. Mm -hmm. So we tend to have the ultimate responsibility for all the technical decisions made in the system development lifecycle. Yeah. Uh, but of course... Uh, inevitably, because you're responsible for a lot of decisions, you're really responsible for other people's. Right. So it's a question of making the biggest decisions yourself and then shepherding other people to make decisions you think are sound inside yeah. that kind of framework. So how would you define architecture? Oh, that's a very good question. <laughs> um, actually, my, f my flippant response to that is it's the set of design decisions that if you get them wrong, they'll cancel your project. They're the ones you really yeah. have to get right. Right. Um, another, another slightly flippant but maybe more useful definition is They tend to be the design decisions that people outside the project care about, mm -hmm. and indirectly perhaps, but they can see them or they're affected by right. them. Right. The definition I like to use is all the stuff you want to be consistent all throughout the system for reasons of achieving non-functional requirements or mm -hmm. reliability or maintainability. And that's another great definition. Yeah. The, definitely the scope of the decision is yeah. one of those things that separates a design decision, one designer working in his yeah. subsystem, yeah. and an architectural decision, yeah. which is something that affects the whole system. Yeah. I think something, or one definition that's often used, talks about granularity and scale. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably not useful because you might even have, on a very fine-grained level, certain architectural constraints, like, for example, the locking protocol to be used. That's very detailed about how you access a resource, but it's still architectural because it's cross-cutting and, and kind of global. I completely agree. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, then. Um, so I guess your your top 10 architecture mistakes are, I would guess, basically a kind of lessons learned from working as an architect and, and seeing how people go wrong, right? That's right. Um, 10, of course, is a somewhat arbitrary, nice sure, number. Of course, yes. And I'm sure if I'd carried on thinking, perhaps I could have come up with a few more. Yeah. The background is um, I'm a member of the International Association of Software Architects, ISA. Mm -hmm. uh, ISAhome.org, if you're after it. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, they have a program where they... Uh, um, find publications who are interested in, in, in articles being written and approach me and ask me for an idea. And I came up with this idea. Mm -hmm. And then um, I think somebody at JOO saw the idea and so invited me to give the talk based on it. So um, tens perhaps a nice round number, but the way I, I came up with these specific problems is they're all ones I've seen, uh, they're all mistakes I've seen made more than once. Yeah, okay. And they've, they've tended to be painful. Right. <laughs> okay, so um, let's, let's start with the first one. It's called Scoping Woes. Yes, this is where um, 
there's obviously two problems with scope. One is you get it too narrow, and one you get too broad. And you'll tend to get different people interested in the project, stakeholders, if you will, pulling in different directions mm-hmm. on this, is that it's very common to see you know, senior management will decide that a very, very minimalist system is exactly what they're after because they'd rather not pay for anything bigger because <laughs> uh, the budget is rather fixed. Uh, and then you'll get perhaps an end user or um, uh, perhaps somebody el- else, uh, maybe even a systems administrator, deciding that there's a whole lot of features that they'd like added yeah. which really aren't required, but they can make a good case for them. Mm-hmm. And scope in either direction is a problem. And actually, functional scope's one thing. I yeah. need it to do this, or I should. it shouldn't do this. But actually, the thing that often comes back to kill you is the non-functional scopes. So it's 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 getting the scope of things like how much security you really mm-hmm. need yeah. wrong. Mm-hmm. And you can end up in, in a morass of <laughs> security uh, c- yeah. you know, protocols and people and technology that you yeah. didn't really need, or you can't go live because you missed out an important aspect. Yeah. It's, it's probably some of those non-functional requirements for which it's not necessarily easy to explain the trade-offs. I mean, like every, of course everybody wants security and scalability and everything, mm-hmm. but all of those come with a cost. That's absolutely true. But yes. that cost is sometimes hard to put into numbers. I guess and that's where some of the problems come from indeed uh, i mean my, my classic example is that if you get the security scope too narrow the the hidden cost is you can't go live with the system right because somebody at the last minute will tell you yeah. it's too narrow they won't yes. come and find you and tell you it's too narrow yes. you've got to go out and find them and check that it's wide enough yeah uh, and yeah. Th- that's a very big cost if yeah. if this system is business critical yeah. have you seen that that um, a system that is perceived to be really important for the for the company or organization going 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 further um, that that it has been cancelled for reasons of security l- really right before it, it, it went live? Never cancelled, uh, but uh, in the security software industry, uh, there are many stories of big product releases being pulled at the last minute mm-hmm. because somebody hasn't checked off a verification test yeah. or somebody didn't realize that some extra protocol was required. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's not that you can the project, don't get me wrong, it's not that serious, yeah. but suddenly you've missed a release window, right. which actually... That might be the hidden cost. It's right. the fact that three months later the system is less, or the product release is yeah. is less valuable. Yeah. So of course, I mean, you know, just highlighting problems and uh, mistakes is one thing, and it's mm-hmm. useful in itself. But um, maybe we have some remedies. What can we do? I mean, how do ah, we? Yes. How do we? How do we? <laughs> what do we do to to hopefully get scoping? better mm-hmm. right i knew you'd start asking hard questions yeah. at some point <laughs> <laughs> uh yes i mean scope is just tough to get right but the key thing really is is making sure that you understand who the decision makers and the important people are who have a say in scope mm-hmm. and who will be affected by scope and get them on board early it's very related to the second point is about talking to stakeholders mm-hmm. but uh, the, the two are very closely related yeah. but um really the first one is what happens typically when when you don't cast your stakeholder right. out widely and I guess the, the other thing that's related is then if you have the stakeholders that you make it clear to them what it means to either not have a certain thing in scope mm-hmm. or putting something in scope and then talking about the cost of adding that so Actually, they can make a real good decision. That's a very good point. Uh, just informing the stakeholders often really doesn't achieve anything right. because they'll simply nod. They really won't understand the trade-off that you're trying to get them to make. Yes. And you, you often you have to bring, you know, senior managers, the classic thing is you have to bring the trade-off on three three PowerPoint slides, right. give them the options, get them to make a decision. Right. Exactly. Uh, but even I've found, you know, sometimes you deal with an enterprise security group and really they they won't really pick out the decision you're, you, you, 
you're trying to get them to make, they'll really just give you further advice, right. which is not really what you're after. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because they want don't want to be responsible, maybe. That, <laughs> that's probably part of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so the as you said, the next one, um, not talking to as many stakeholders um, as you should, mm -hmm. uh, is very related. So can you can you explain that and also distinguish that from the first one? Sure. Well, as I say, I think it might be, now I think of it, <laughs> it might be cause and effect, really. Yeah. Um, or certainly one of the effects uh, yeah. of, of not talking to enough stakeholders and taking them seriously and really listening to them is that you'll end up with scope problems. Uh, you may end up with other problems as well, of course. Um, yes, I mean, for most systems, the classic stakeholder is the end user and probably the acquirer, so the person mm -hmm. paying the bills. So I'm talking about an in-house system here. Yep. The problem is, is that for many teams, that's where it starts and stops, and they don't really think any further than that. But if you think about the life cycle of a big system going into the enterprise environment, there's a lot of other people who care. I mean, classic people would include people who will have to support the system, who may be different to the development team, yep. or might be the same, but you've, you, they've got two hats. The infrastructure folks, yeah, the DBAs, or people who operate it, absolutely. Uh, people like enterprise compliance, uh, audit, control, all those yeah. people, especially if, if you're in a regulated industry, <laughs> such as medical or finance, yeah. Yeah. Um, they, they have a lot of say. And so there's a whole lot of people who uh, who aren't, if you like, business users. I mean, they, in a sense, they don't necessarily contribute anything directly to right. the use of the system. But get it wrong for them, and there's probably a lot of pain just down the road for you, because yeah. you'll have to force the changes in. Another characteristic of some of those groups is probably also that they're not going to actively, you know, come to you and tell you, you know, here is what we need. They just sit there passively, and then if you don't conform to their expectations, you're host. That's absolutely the case. The classic problem with dealing with an infrastructure group, and to be fair to them, you know, they're very busy people and yes. the resource and everything, but the problem is they do sit there passively, and then at the last minute your system turns up, and then they'll complain about not being involved. Yeah. Well, of course... You didn't realize they had to be. Yep. And it's, it, that's just where experience, really, yep. and organizational knowledge comes in. Yep. So these people need to be involved earlier. The other thing is to describe your architecture, your system, in a way that they understand. Mm -hmm. And that's where this idea of architectural views. Yep. You don't draw one big picture because no one will understand it. Yes. Draw pictures aimed at the different people who care. Yeah. Yep. Right. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, the some of sometimes I get the impression with those groups that they... Well, obviously, obviously, they don't directly benefit from the introduction of a new system. It's mm -hmm. more a chore for them to have to operate it. And that's how it seems. Of that's course, the true, yes. organization as a whole yeah. benefits, so they do. Mm -hmm. but, but, but that's maybe why they're kind of passively sitting there and not actively saying, you know, I need this, I need this requirement. It solves my problem because yeah, you don't solve their problem. That's perfectly problems. true. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I, I separate stakeholders at a positive and negative. Right, yeah, yeah. Some yeah, yeah. want the system to, to be there and to succeed. Very Compliance, good point. To compliance, every new system is a risk. Why would they want it in production? Right. And so they it's their job to block it, yeah. it can be argued. And yeah. of course, there many compliance people are very positive, to be fair, in yeah, yeah, sure. getting involved. Bashing. But if you look at it from a pure self-interest point of view, yeah. why would they want your system in production? Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And that's really the problem, is that get those people on side as early as you can, yeah. because yeah. they need to be your friend. Another another thing in this context is that, that I've experienced with, especially with large, large customers, is that they already have a bunch of existing frameworks, platforms, tools, libraries mm -hmm. for logging, for example. Yeah, and if yeah. you don't use that, your system won't fit into their operations infrastructure and then again you're screwed. So so that's knowing true. their technical requirements is, is something that's very very related here too. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's often painful for the development team. They don't want exactly. to use this library or 
I mean, I worked for UBS Investment Bank for nearly three years, and they, they have various system monitoring things that you have to do there yeah. for good reason, and that's why they have reliable systems. Yeah. Every development team bitches about them, but you know, yeah. they're there for a reason. Yeah. If, 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 if you don't standardize, it can't be supported. Yeah. So you one just have to live with it. One customer I worked for uh, had the same kind of thing, but they weren't they didn't document their frameworks and they had no people that actually could come to your project and help you get things right. Mm -hmm. So you had to use it, but you basically couldn't. Actually, that I've was very bad. I've tended to find that's the norm, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You must do all this, good luck. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah. who knows what's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, and if you get it wrong, we'll tell you just about, just before you go into production. Right, yes. Yeah. That's, that's, and then, then it becomes a power play of whether you get it running or not, depending on who is more important in the company. Indeed. Whether the so business unit can swing right. their, their yes. influence. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Okay, uh, next one, focusing on functions, or the other way, of course, is forgetting the non-functional stuff, mm -hmm. right? Indeed, yes. I mean, this is this is the classic problem where you ask somebody what you want the system to do, and they'll give you a laundry list of functions, as we've already mentioned, some that they really need and some that they just kind of like if you can do them. Um, what they'll never tell you is all the implicit quality requirements. Mm. That it's got to be available during these hours. Um, a failure costs them this much money a minute, um, there's this many users will be using it, and um, the it must be able to process this many items in an overnight batch within a one-hour window, uh, while the database is still in use by another region. It's, it's all these things about how the system's going to do it. Yeah. And I yet have to meet uh, any kind of end user, to be honest, who really can help me specify those very right. precisely. You really have to go out, assert some things are correct, find out if they're not find p potential clashes with the way the organization works and other systems, learn from other systems, especially if, like me, you're quite new to an organization, find out wh where others ha have had those problems. Yeah. And then really go through a, a checklist of all the different qualities that you think might be relevant as to yeah. what are the top three, how do they, uh, uh, and the, most, the trickiest bit, how do they trade off against each right. other? Right, yeah, 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 exactly. That's the problem with the non-functionals. They always kind of balance between various of them or yes, several of them indeed. too. too yeah. mm -hmm. uh, another thing that I read recently, I don't remember where, oh, it was in uh, Tom DeMarco's new book, The, 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 the Adrenaline Junkies, mm -hmm. where he talks about straw man, where he says, and that goes back to our scoping thing also, where you have to really build a straw man scenario that says, you know, we're going to build a system, but it requires a reboot every night, mm -hmm. and we need one week per year to install the new version, and it's going to be over Christmas. Is this okay for you? <laughs> and of course, it's a ridiculous statement, I think that's but a great it, idea. it provokes <laughs> the stakeholders to become, you know, basically to, to protest and say, no, 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 it needs to be this way. Indeed. I have done similar things. Uh, you've got to be careful how often you do it, but I, yeah. I, I have done it to provoke a reaction. Yeah. And also you find out if they've read the document. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> yes. if they don't come back with any complaints, you know they didn't read it, no matter what they say. Yeah. I think that's a great idea. I yeah. must find that book. <laughs> it's actually, it's a nice book. It's like a collection of 95 patterns or something okay. that they detected in projects about behaviors that, that work and don't work. Okay. And, uh, Excellent. Yeah, we'll have an episode on SE Radio at some point with, with those guys. Very good. Um, <coughs> so, it, it, with these non-functional qualities, um, the problem is often that you have to somehow make them concrete into numbers. Like, we need a reliability of such and such many nines or whatever. Mm -hmm. What's your experience? Can you make typical stakeholders actually commit to numbers or are they afraid of being concrete so they can always say they wanted more than you did or you know i haven't really found them being afraid of being concrete of more if anything it's the opposite if mm. anything when if you make it concrete they'll just simply sign it off because 
it looks very precise mm-hmm. and scientific. So everything's <laughs> going to be fine. Yeah. And it's only later they really think about what not having available on a Saturday morning means. Mm-hmm. And they don't necessarily think through the scenarios. Right. What you sometimes have to do is, um, a little bit like at a much more formal level, um, sort of high process approach, uh, the SEI's ATAM method for assessing mm-hmm. software architectures yeah. is all very scenario-based. Yeah. You can do a similar thing, much much less formally, with a, f- a few sentences to kind of illustrate to somebody what a particular uh, quality requirement is, is going to imply for them. So yeah, right. they can, I don't know, process a thousand units per hour in the, in the nightly batch. This means we can't process more than two regions overnight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then they go, oh, no, no, hang on. We, we, right. And you say, well, you've only got two regions. And they go, no, 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 but we're about to have six. And you right. go, right, we've uncovered a quality requirement. Thank <laughs> you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some are still difficult because things like security, um, you, can, you can do scenarios, but unless the person is a security specialist and used to things like threat modeling and thinking about security, it's quite tricky to really to get people to to, to react one way or the other. And most of us, frankly, are not experts in security yeah. ourselves. Yes, So right. yep. it, it, there are still qualities that it's tricky on. Evolution's another great one. I mean, um, the SEI have got this great example in one of their training manuals about um, stimulus to the system is change database from MySQL to Oracle. Requirement is must be able to do it in 20 man days. Well, I don't know about you, I don't know how long it would take to change the database right. on my system. Yep. And I'm not quite sure how I'd work it out without trying it, yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> which would be a lot of work. So yeah. some of them are just hard. And yeah. uh, to be honest, I, I think in some areas like evolution, they're really more aspirations than requirements you necessarily can honestly say you can meet because they're very hard to test. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah but, but yeah, it, it gives you at least topics to focus on like your database thing example you know that database independence is important so you think about and you 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 know you take precautions about making things from the database not show up in the apis and stuff that's perfectly true so, so it and it, it puts the fear of god into in the right areas right. so <laughs> it can be useful yes yeah. so the next one uh, bubble stone crash right <laughs> using, using box yes. in line description what's the problem with that well it's the it's not so much that Pictures are a bad thing. In right. fact, I'm a very pictorial thinker, and yeah. I find a lot of software designers are, uh, as are designers in traditional industries, too, yes. uh, traditional engineering industries too. Um, the problem is uh, the either A3 Visio diagram, <laughs> full of boxes <laughs> and small arrows, all with slightly different dashes uh, on the arrow stems and different shading in the boxes that everyone's forgotten what it means. Yeah. Or equally well, the five-box PowerPoint slide with a different type of border on every box and lots of arrows joining them, but you're not quite sure what the arrows mean. And uh, sometimes those things have their place. Uh, um, When Nick Rosansky and I wrote our book, we we referred to those as cartoons, as sort Mm -hmm. of informal... I, informal architectural sketches. That's actually not how, for example, the SER use the term cartoon. They use it differently. But, um, I mean... Our, our, our kind of idea was yeah, sort of uh, having done all the formal stuff. If you need to explain it to somebody quickly, you'd sit down with a piece of paper and a, a pencil, and you draw five boxes. That was our idea. You'd be sketching a cartoon, yep. and that's useful. But if you don't have the the actual description somewhere, you actually don't know what yep. the components of the system are or how they fit together. Yep. And the snag is, is that if if you do do it all with some strange notation, you don't bother defining. Everyone thinks they understand it, right. and actually, no one does. Yeah. So this this. I mean, you kind of hit a nerve with with me because, mm-hmm. as you maybe know, I'm modeling, Absolutely. doing a lot yep. of stuff, uh-huh. and and uh, so first of all, I, I tend to prefer textual languages over graphical ones, but but mm-hmm. this is another discussion. So I 
distinguish between modeling and diagramming and the diagram is kind of sure. your cartoons right it's it's a visualization of something that doesn't need to be formally defined but the notation must be clear not not formally mm -hmm. clear but intuitively clear and then on, on the other side you have models which you can actually process generate code from and validate that's that's something true. completely different yeah to be fair uh, absolutely i uh, in this presentation in particular i neatly gloss over this right which in fact if any of my engineers are listening to this they'll be shouting at the shouting at their ipods because i'm always <laughs> telling people off for drawing pictures and not putting a model behind it yeah. um yes for, f for me the picture is simply a representation of the model, model yeah uh, which is why you know we try and use some tools like yeah, Magic Draw is, is one particular one we use that has a real UML model behind right, it. Yeah. It's not just a picture in Visio. Yeah. Um, to me, actually drawing the pictures is often not that valuable because you can't use the information for anything. If the stuff's in a in a model and you yeah. can navigate through the repository, yeah. you can ask it questions. Now you right. may have to write scraps of code to ask the questions, but you yeah. can ask questions and you can get answers back. Right. And yeah. it's tremendously more valuable. So, so in in this context you, you say that using box and line descriptions is is a is a is a mistake is a problem it's a it potential problem it's a potential problem if it is used in this non formal way so turning it around um do you think there is a benefit to describing architectures formally um well i think that very much depends on the scale and the environment uh, with every well every deliverable but especially architecture deliverables the question to ask is who's going to use it mm -hmm. Providing you have a constituency, some people who care, uh, that there is some formality behind your architecture and that they can animate it or generate something off it or um, just simply maybe run reports on it, right. then it's useful to have mm -hmm. some level of formality, especially machine process, right. machine processable formality. That, that's what I mean by formality. That's right. my definition of formality. I okay. can write any tool that you know checks constraints on it or generates code or right because i came originally from a formal methods background. oh, oh, oh see it no, no, there's no. a tremendous uh, tremendous amount of writing upside down a's on whiteboards yeah. and then not be able to process them right yeah, <laughs> yeah. to be fair the yeah. view from the formal methods community has moved a long way beyond that <laughs> <laughs> yeah actually i tend to use the term processable as opposed to formal in yes, my talks indeed. for exactly that reason i always that's something i'm always thinking to myself when i'm typing stuff into a uml tool supposing i am doing that yeah um how could i pull this out later yeah uh, would it be useful? So you just said, suppose I do that. Do you do you actually use UML regularly, and do you use it for diagramming, for communicating ideas, or do you really use it in a formal way? Formal being defined in the sense we just said. Uh, I do use UML. Um, I'd say I must say, as a percentage of my time, uh, it's probably actually producing models and diagrams is quite a small amount of it. Mm -hmm. uh, but yes, I mean every architecture document I produce, I do use UML. Right to describe my main structural views. Mm -hmm. The way I always describe UML is it really sucks as an architecture description language, but I haven't yet found a better one. Well, yeah. well, I Especially one in, in general use that I can buy a tool for. So, that's the point. Because I... I well, and th this goes... Actually, this is more like my opinion and I maybe should keep it out of this episode, but I think, and maybe just briefly, I think <laughs> a big a big sweet spot is actually defining your own language mm -hmm. for your that captures your architectural abstractions of your system or product line or platform mm -hmm. or whatever, because then you don't have to shoehorn your abstractions into an existing generic language, but rather mm -hmm. you express things as a language um, as they are defined in your environment. So that's, actually, that's I the approach agree. I, 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 I um, take. Yeah, actually, I think we're in sort of violent agreement. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, uh, in fact, the one good thing about UML really 
is is that you don't need to put up with the language as it's shipped. It's it's extensible. In some sense, And yeah. tools have just caught up with the extensibility of adding proper stereotypes and adding yeah. predefined attributes and so yeah, on. Yeah. Of course, you're stuck with a meta model, yeah, um, and right. you just have to have, have to deal with that. Um, yes, I'm actually very interested in whether some form of practical... Um, in fact, it would, it would be textual DSL yes. can be produced. And we could all work together to do a kind of... Um, spring-like thing, something that sits on top of spring components, something like that, where you, your architecture is actually part of the system. It's not a separate artifact. Actually, this is exactly my, my point there. It's a kind of executable architecture. You Absolutely. go from, mm -hmm. from, from just having verbal or pictorial input as an architect, mm -hmm. you go to concrete, processable, usable artifacts that are part of the system. Indeed. And today, of course, we do that by yeah. doing the first cut coding. We create right. the Java yes. packages, yes. we put the right. main classes in place, yes. we put a lot of other empty classes yeah. in yeah. place, yeah. and we say to everyone, work in the framework. Right. And that's kind of our executable yeah. architecture. Yeah. But of course, we lose two-thirds of the architectural information. Yeah, sure, as because we you can't express it in code. Absolutely. So that's where you need... Well, I, I think we, we need to talk after. <laughs> yes, that's like it. Yeah. Because it's, it's, I, I have uh, this approach currently in, 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 in progress with a couple of customers. Oh, absolutely. And it works really nice. Mm -hmm. But uh, this is another thing. Okay, uh, next one is forgetting that it needs to be built. Right, well, this is the classic problem if you're, if you're using... Uh, spending too much time in a UML tool and not enough time in an IDE. It's... Um, Deciding that we're going to use this latest, sexiest bit of technology, which is just going to be fantastic and have all these benefits, yep. forgetting the fact that the team who are going to build it with you are profoundly unenthusiastic about <laughs> <the> <laughs> about what you've you've uh, you, you've decided to pick up. I don't really want to learn it, yep. um, and actually, uh, your infrastructure guys don't think they can run it. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are all things which have happened to real systems I have shamefacedly been involved in. Yeah. Is that, um, And it needn't even be a new bit of technology. It's just a new way of using it, perhaps. Yeah. Is that um, you can only move as fast as your underlying platform and, uh, and your sort of development constraints. Right. Uh, yeah. if, if you don't have the team that can build it, if you don't have the money, if you don't have the time, if you don't have the infrastructure environment, if you don't have the support guys, there's just no point in deciding you're going to do this new sexy thing. By all means, go and play with that on a Sunday afternoon, but on Monday morning back at work. <laughs> You've got to have that reality <laughs> check. <laughs> yeah. So um, this is also a little bit the, the ivory tower architect problem, right? So you have an it architect it, it who only, you know, has on cloud seven with concepts as opposed to actually looking at the code and dealing with the real world developers. Indeed. I mean, my pet bugbear at the moment is SOA and the number yeah. of central architecture teams who don't have a delivery responsibility for systems who have decided yes. that you should build systems using SOA yeah. and I, I yet really have to find all that many what I would call stream architects the guys actually building systems who yeah. are terribly enthusiastic about SOA so it seems to bring a lot yeah. of baggage with it yeah. and uh, <laughs> that it, it's a classic problem if, if you're sitting centrally and you're looking at principles and concepts it's very easy not to follow through mentally in the how would I actually build with it and run it in yeah. production yeah yeah, this is another thing where I think uh, concepts are important in architecture. So, you, you, mm -hmm. you, I mean, you think about things like decoupling and, I don't know, decentralization, compensation as opposed to locking. Mm -hmm. It's important, but, but as you say, you have, to, you have to find a way to bring it down to the real, to, to the real guys who have, who have to work with it and, and make it relevant for them. Indeed. And make sure also that, I mean, that the problem I, I've observed in myself as much as others, I'm, I'm pointing the finger at myself here, is you download the new core language, the classic at the moment being the functional language, right? Yes, sure. You download it, you play with it on your MacBook, which of course you can't connect to a corporate network because you, you use PCs. <laughs> it's completely isolated and you play through a whole lot of tutorials and you go in suddenly very excited about the potential of functional languages. You haven't actually worked through a real problem that you yes. might hit in, in, mm. in the real deployment environment until you've done... A, 
a bit more of that. You need to keep your enthusiasms under control, is, yeah. is my view, really. Yeah. <laughs> okay, next one. Lack of platform precision. Ah, uh, well, this was a problem I had very specifically when working uh, for a company I sure they won't mind me using their name, Intertrust Technologies, who still exist. They're, they're now a subsidiary of Sony and Philips. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they're based in California, and they do digital rights management systems. Ah, yeah. okay. Boo, hiss. Um, still in business? <laughs> still in business. Well, they're <laughs> subsidiaries of very, very large companies. Okay. Um, they're mainly famous not for their technology, but for suing Microsoft and winning, uh, which ah. m- most companies haven't. But um, <laughs> uh, they, they own a lot of patents in the area. Um, a, a, a specific problem we had there, actually, was versions of the Oracle 8 C client mm-hmm. and the fact that I can't remember the exact numbers, but something like 8.0.17 was <laughs> fundamentally incompatible with 8.7.15, and none of us quite realizing and thinking, well, it's 8.0, it's all Oracle, right? It yeah, should yeah. all just work. Yeah, yeah. And actually, it just it, it caused all kinds of problems on the yeah. server and caused internal server disasters. Um, I've, I have observed this actually in quite a lot of places. And I started my career, as I mentioned, as a system software engineer, so working on a product called Tuxedo. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we always used to cuss at customers who used to report bugs that were quite obviously mismatched configurations. Mm-hmm. Of course, well, I didn't I didn't put the pieces together in my mind then. Actually, yeah. it's quite hard in the real world to put all the pieces together. Yeah. And unfortunately, I mean, Java and .NET, I mean, to be fair, I think have massively simplified this. But um, even in those environments, you can't just assume it's going to work on the next JVM yeah. or, or on someone or else's JVM yeah. without any right. problems. You yeah. know, if you buy an Azul appliance, you're going to need to go and check that all of your yeah. funky locking code actually works the way you yeah. think it does because right. you may be relying on a side effect that you're totally unaware right. of. Yeah, this is this whole f- in concurrency that kind of thing becomes especially problematic. Indeed. And I've come across a lot together uh, also in database systems, yeah. especially interop between things like you've got a Sybase database and an Oracle database mm-hmm. and you're replicating between them. Right. It's all just meant to work and then you need to upgrade one small part of one of the products, and yeah. suddenly all the dates appear with the wrong century or something. Right, and yeah. it's because some engineer somewhere has reset a default that was maybe should always have been applied. Yeah, it yeah. actually fixed a bug, <laughs> but <laughs> yes. it, it's not going to help you. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> Another thing that, that comes to mind in that context, and maybe is related, is the the trying to be platform independent to, an, to mm-hmm. a degree that is kind of pointless. So, because, I mean, adding uh, five different indirection layers, of course, adds complexity and all that. Um, so, trying to be too independent of whatever platform, persistence, middleware, mm-hmm. probably is also a, an anti-pattern that you might want to be on the lookout for. I think I mean that's like a fair point, actually, yes, is that you you can build this tottering stack of abstractions. Yeah. I mean, I have seen the system where, you know, people start with a pub-sub bus, they sort of build a queuing abstraction on top and then realize they need multiple point delivery. They yeah. kind of rebuild a pub-sub thing on top of the queuing. You know, it just... Yeah. Y- Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's like Dan Haywood, um, the independent consultant who was widely known for a bit for criticizing OMG's MDA. I mean, so da- Dan always says, you've got to lock yourself into something, and I'd rather lock myself into Java than UML. Right. And, you know, at some point you have to get concrete. It, it is a fine line, though, uh, because, I mean, of course you don't want to see, I don't know, angle brackets from XML and, and specific mm-hmm. database, specific code in your applications. But on the other hand, trying to so so that you want to abstract from that but trying to abstract from let's say a communications paradigm indeed it, it's it's probably i mean the things to look out for are really i think the the fundamental parts of your platform whatever right. you, you define that in your environment so for example for an embedded guy i guess it's chipset it's mm. hard to ad- completely ignore the fact you're running right. a particular chipset yeah. in my environment it's much more about the fact that we use for example weblogic server right and you know Sure, it's a standard thing, and in theory we could move it to JBoss tomorrow. But actually, um, you know, 
we know that we've got heavy reliance on J2EE, and in fact there are situations where we make a decision that we're going to be quite reliant on the particular yeah. server that we're using. So what I try to, to, to tell my customers is that they should stay away from making their, their, their application code dependent on a specific technology, mm-hmm. but of course they should be relying on a paradigm. Like, for example, it's co- perfectly okay to assume pubs up or, or messaging, mm-hmm. but it's not useful to necessarily code TIPCO APIs directly in your application. So there should be an abstraction of the technology, but not of the paradigm. So that's yes, that's a pretty good rule, I think, to be running with. The, the the problem, of course, being the lowest lowest con- common denominator Absolutely. abstraction problem. Right. Exactly. Tibco, for example, I mean, Tibco RV. If you're really going to use it in a high performance system, it's quite hard to ignore all of Tibco's APIs. Right. And then and then there comes the next the next thing, which I then, you know, if if this reply comes, then <laughs> what I typically add is that if you do technology specific things make sure you isolate it and you're aware so that if you need to change something, you know where you need to touch mm-hmm. things. So you don't have the technology you know, spread through like a cancer through all your system, but you have it isolated to certain whatever methods, framework parts or whatever. Absolutely. So I, I think, yeah, the key message is understand your dependencies, right. yeah, that's where you're dependent on them. Yes, that's, and <laughs> is it, that, that, that's the meta point, but absolutely. It's if you're going to lock yourself into Tibco RV, know where your contact points right. are and know what you rely on. Right. And uh, yes, that, that's the best advice you can give, I think. Yep. Um, performance assumptions. Yes, so this, this point, performance is really just a, a poster child here for making assumptions, particularly about non-functional requirements. Mm-hmm. Um, assuming that because uh, your application server offers a clustering feature, that it's the clustering feature you require and that it works in the way that you need it to work. Yeah. Um, assuming that... Um, because uh, a database vendor, well, my my classic example would be assuming a database vendor has benchmarked something at a speed that you could get anywhere near it. Uh-huh. I mean, which, having worked <laughs> for a database vendor, I know most customers never did. Yeah. <laughs> and for good reasons, considering how much effort goes into a benchmark. Yeah. Um, th- you, I think the list goes on and on, really. It's yeah. that you, you can't possibly test everything, mm-hmm. but some things are going to make a big difference to you if they yeah. turn out to be vastly different to what you're expecting. And so you need to, you know, you, ne- you need to be um, testing if you possibly can, building prototypes. If, and if that's too expensive or difficult, you need to do things like performance models or security models. Really try and work through in your head. Yeah. Is this credible that we could run this this fast or that this couldn't be broken or that yeah. um, this honestly could move all the workload in flight between these machines? Um, you know, I- in many cases, you'll come up with uh, a sudden light bulb will go on. You'll realize that that's not going to happen yeah. for the following reasons. So in some sense, it's also, you could rephrase that as don't believe marketing speak. <laughs> that possibly is the less vendor less vendor friendly v- yeah. version of it. Yes, indeed. Yeah. 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 Don't assume that all the stuff in your environment works the way that people tell you. Right. Yeah. yeah. And and then, of course, what you do against that is that you do load tests with mockups early, right, in, in case Absolutely. of scalability, mm-hmm. or really build, you know, spikes that verify certain behaviors of mm-hmm. your platform, right? Yeah. I mean, the best thing is hands-on testing. And, that's right. th- and this is where I think if architects aren't on the critical path coding the application, they can... A, stay you know, hands-on and, uh, and relevant and up-to-date, and B, f- um, perform a very valuable function for the project by building the performance prototype, integrating the security platform, and checking that the security team are happy with it, um, right. you know, actually checking that failover works the way yeah. they think it does. So that's actually probably a, rec- a recommendation on itself, which would be build a prototype that only verifies the non-functionals mm-hmm. and, and fill the business logic with sleep statements, right? Uh, pretty well, exactly. 
Yeah, yeah that probably Indeed. helps. Yeah. yeah. The next uh, of your top 10 software architects mistakes is do-it-yourself security. That's right. It's it's really do-it-yourself infrastructure, but security is the best example that seems to keep cropping up. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that uh, pretty well every software engineer, if you ask them in a in a quiet moment, will 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 feel that they can probably whip together good infrastructure, such mm-hmm. as a cryptography algorithm. Yep. And it's not till you work with real experts uh, and you realise that there's a bit more to it that mm-hmm. it dawns on you that actually. Um, you probably can't. <laughs> right. There is a reason that security products, for example, uh, tend to cost money um, and tend to be quite complicated because right. the problems they're solving are complicated. Yeah. And there's a real danger if you do blunder forwards with, with a little bit of knowledge, just enough to be dangerous, yeah. then you're likely to cause problems later, ones that may only come out in production because yeah. it's it's when the system's actually in use you find that perhaps it doesn't scale the way you thought it did or you've tried to write your own cluster and it really doesn't have the failover yeah. characteristics you yeah. need. Yeah, and in security, I think it's especially true that because uh, writing the algorithm, of course, is only half the story. You have to use the algorithm in a system that is secure um, as, as a system. Otherwise, you introduce all kinds of back doors and stuff. That Absolutely, there's a whole, the algorithm there's is a whole okay. lot of moving parts, and they need yeah. to be integrated. Otherwise, you have security holes right through the process. Right, right. So. Another thing I think related here is, in in addition to not doing it yourself, is also. Mm, there are some concerns, security certainly is one, that you cannot easily retrofit afterwards, that you have to think of and plan for right from the beginning. Absolutely right. Uh, and of course, it's the flip side. You don't really want to lock yourself into a particular security product, so you need yeah. to get the right abstractions in your system. Right. But yes, I mean, all of these qualities are hard to retrofit afterwards. Yeah. So making good choices about what abstractions you need in your system and then using proven reusable infrastructure makes a lot of sense in most cases. Right. Yeah. There are always the Googles, and they're a little bit different. Yeah. For them, it makes sense to build their own because they need a different set. Yeah. But for most of us, using the stuff off the shelf is a good first step. Yeah, yeah I agree. Okay, uh, the next one is uh, that actually reminds me of the interview here. It's called No Disaster Recovery Plan. <laughs> and the reason why it reminds me of the interview is actually that we're this is the second part. During the first part of the interview, the recorder died. And uh, so, anyway, no disaster <laughs> recovery plan. Indeed. You can never, n- well, that's the lesson. You can never predict what's going to fail. Right. <laughs> and, and, and something's always going to fail. That's right. And most of the systems that we work on, uh, businesses or organizations are pretty uh, dependent on them. Yeah. Um, it's quite rare today to find a system of any size that you can remove it from the organization and the organization continues at anything like the efficiency, profitability, and in yeah. some cases, the organization simply has to stop that business until the system is repaired. Yeah. Um, the problem, of course, with the disaster recovery, it's a bit like paying for your house insurance. Absolutely. Nobody really wants to do it. And especially up front, early in the project, when you've got everything to think about, it's very tempting to push disaster recovery off because it's not actually needed until mm-hmm. you're in production. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the big difficulty with that is that my experience is that actually uh, if you introduce disaster recovery incrementally as you build the system, as you design it, it's not a great overhead for every piece you add. You have to work right. out how you're going to do recovery or failover yeah. on that piece. Yeah. Yeah. Adding it afterwards to a system that's had no thought of disaster yeah. recovery from the beginning, yeah. that goes back to what you were saying. These things are hard to retrofit. Right. And it's very easy to end up with a system that actually can't be efficiently fell to a disaster recovery site. And yeah. you end up with all of these manual steps that have to be done, which are just asking for trouble in, right. a, in a real disaster. Yeah. So this is probably a good point to uh, remember, you guys, listeners, that we've had the episode on fault tolerance patterns with Bob Hanmer. I guess you know them. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I guess this episode ties in here nicely. 
to yes, look at that uh, stuff. Go away and look at them again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, and also look at there's a very good book who uh, I'd have to send you the details, but on high availability uh, patterns and systems. Yeah. Um, that's again great resource. Uh, there's also um, there's a good book on clusters, mm-hmm. uh, which it. A lot of this stuff is really aimed at people building the HA infrastructure, right. but to have a deeper understanding of the patterns yeah. really helps you when you come to make your own stuff highly available because right. you know what to avoid. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, this would be useful to get this link, and we'll put it into the show notes. Sure. Yeah. Okay. And uh, the last of the ten is to have no plan to back out, no back out plan. What do you mean by that? Mm. I'm not. Well, that's clear. when um, you've decided that you're going to do the migration. You've planned it carefully. You start to do the migration. Oh, you mean from the, from the old system to the new one? To the new system, indeed. Yeah. And at some point in that process, you realize with horror, you're not going to get this done by, say, Monday morning yeah. <laughs> when they're expecting to use the system. Yeah. Or something simply breaks. Yeah. Uh, in my experience, actually, to be fair, it's often not the application. It's that something has changed in the infrastructure environment mm-hmm. that nobody was aware would yeah. affect this system. Yeah. And suddenly, for example, you know, the, the clustering isn't working or they can't hook up to the security system yeah. or there's a horrible delay as they try and get clients connected and they just have to go back to the previous state. The problem is, of course, if you haven't got that previous state ready to roll back in quickly, yeah. it's very difficult. Yeah. Um, and I mean, in the worst cases, you have to allow for a window of 50% of your upgrade time to mm-hmm. do a, p- a potential rollback, which is very yeah. inefficient. Yeah. Um, th- there's lots of shortcuts, you know, you Dump your databases first. You make sure that you, if possible, you uh, you have two sets of hardware, which is kind of expensive, but yep. maybe you can share them with another project. Yep. You deploy onto one, and then you cut yep. across. There's lots of relatively simple techniques, actually, but in many, many cases, people actually don't think out yep. how to roll back as opposed to just move forwards during a migration. Yep. And they can simply leave their business without a system. And there's very few businesses <laughs> are going to be happy with that on their Monday morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was one of my first experiences as a programmer in a hospital mm. i spent the weekend um, going back from microsoft sql server 6.5 <laughs> to <laughs> 6 <laughs> although the stupid migration to- tool told me that migrating from 6.0 to 6.5 is no problem everything's fine so I press the button and of course uh-huh. it failed indeed and that's uh, the problem with wizards yeah. they're not as smart as they think they are <laughs> yeah pain Okay, so um, I guess that brings us to the end of your top 10. Is there any 11th that kind of comes to your mind yet you that you wish to have added to the top 10 that you now think of, you know? Not yet, but if listeners have some suggestions, then they should send <laughs> yeah. them to me because I'm sure there's another 10 to be written. Okay, yeah, cool. <laughs> so, um, okay. So anything else you want to leave our listeners with? Any words of wisdom? I think they've probably had enough words from me. Uh, it's worth though <laughs> saying that <laughs> Software Engineering Radio, it's a great resource. Uh, thank thank you. you very much for doing it. And sure. uh, I guess, listeners, if you've not paid your subscription, then <laughs> now's the moment. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a very good point. <laughs> actually, I spent some of the money of the donations we got today to buy a new compact flash uh, drive because the original one failed, as I said, in the first recording of this interview. But now somehow the second one has a problem and I had to go back. To the so now one. we have a DR planned and it's, it's m- money wisely invested. Yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for downloading and listening to Software Engineering Radio. Software Engineering Radio is an educational program brought to you by Hillside Europe. If you want more information about the podcast and all the other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. If you want to support us, you can donate to the SE Radio team via the website. Or you can advertise for SE Radio, for example, by clicking on the Dick Reddit Delicious and Slashdot buttons. 
To contact the team, please send email to team at se-radio.net or if it is specific to an episode, please use the comments facility on the website so other people can react to your comments. This episode of SE Radio as well as all other episodes are licensed under a Creative Commons 2.5 license. Please see the website for details. Thanks to Charlie Crow and the Podsafe Music Network for the music used in this show. The song is called Vegas Hard Rock Shuffle.